My name is Max Macias. I am an independent librarian in Oregon. I am part of the OLA's EDI and Anti-Racism Committee, and we're putting together a series of podcasts for you all. I am Kia Yembe, and I'm also part of the OLA EDI and Anti-Racism Committee. This is our first episode of Overview, Weeding Out Oppression Library. And with us is Marcy Romero Jenkins, the person behind the Equity, Diversity, Inclusion, and Anti-Racism Toolkit for Libraries. So we're very excited to start a conversation with Marcy about something that is long overdue. <laughs> Good day, Marcy. Hi, guys. It's such a pleasure to be here today and have this conversation with you guys. I am the current OLA vice president and president-elect, OLA Oregon Library Association, for those who doesn't know. And I also work in a library. I'm a reference librarian at McMinnville Public Library. And I was the first chair for the EDI Anti-Racism Committee along with Alma Placencia at the time. So it's such an honor and I'm very happy to be here. Yeah, no, we are happy that you are here. And (laughs) so for start the conversation, we thought that we can ask you little questions just to break the ice. So the first one is, who is your hero? Wow. I actually love this question because I love talking about my hero. My hero is my dad. His name is Edson Ramiro. And in order to talk about my dad, I think I need to explain how he plays this role in my life as a hero. I kind of need to tell a little bit of his story. And his story is, can trigger some people because he has some tragic events. So just a heads up. But my dad grew up very poor in Brazil. He used to live in this very rural area and he started working in the fields when he was only eight years old. So my dad uh, had a very difficult childhood. He witnessed atrocities and adversities at a very young age. When he was about nine, he witnessed the murder of his two uncles. And the same criminals that shot his uncles also shot his dad in the back and caused my grandpa to be paralyzed on the waist down. And this event was so traumatic to my dad's family that made them lose everything they had in order to try to find this cure for my grandpa that never happened because there was no cure for his type of paralysis. So my dad took the role as a parent and started working in the field to help the family. And he used to go and work very early in the morning in the fields. And then in the afternoon, he used to attend this rural school for a few hours. That's the way things were in Brazil back in those days. And he knew the only way out of poverty was through education. And then he was a very dedicated student. As the time progresses, he was able to actually attend a high school in a larger city. And he was the first person in his family to graduate from college and then to attend law school to get a Jewish dog. So he lived most of his youth under military dictatorship. And he was this true revolutionary guy who fought the system, was a true activist. He knew people that were captured by the regime and torn and murdered. And to make matters worse, when he was only 18 years old, his mother died of a heart attack in his, in his arms. So, you know, I'm talking about all this tragedy events. And I guess because one is his life 
and I admire his level of maturity and strength. And what I'm going to say now, it's, it might sound a little weird, but I w- it will make sense. My dad, he was a white man, 100% European descendant, Spanish and Portuguese. And I am a mixed race individual raised by this white man and a mixed race white passing mother. Darkest child of this couple, and I struggle a lot. And to fit in in my family and with all the intricacies that a person of color goes through. I actually realized I was a person of color at the age of six when a group of white kids didn't want to play with me at a party because according to them, I was brown and ugly. So the minute my dad found out about this, I was like really nervous that he would say something or embarrass me even even more. But he comforted me. And I think that's what happened because I was six years old. So I don't know if he really educated himself on how to act in situations like that, but I believe he did. And he comforted me the best way he could. And when I was a teenager and I faced all the issues that youth of color face in their lifetime, like prejudice, colorism, profiling. He actually was the one who understood all that. And he actually understood my world with all the oppression, the colorism, the microaggressions, even before these things became mainstream. And that was really complex for a white male. And he played that role for me, creating my first and most effective ally. And he acted in a way that he never throw his difficulties that he went through in life as a justification. Oh, no, look at me. I am the one who suffered trauma. I am the one who have all those life experiences and I should be traumatized. He never did that. He actually created this very psychological safety around me where I could share with him experiences. So he showed me level of allyship that I never experienced. I don't think my my mom or my siblings even know that, but I came to him once and I, I was crying and I said, dad, I am at this, uh, I accept this job at this place and I am being bullied every day and discriminated and humiliated every single day. And but they really need me there. And I don't understand why they create this universe for me if they need me so much. And, he's, and he said, oh, you know what are you going to do? You're going to quit. And I was like, dad, I can't do that. I have my bills to pay. And I, he said, no, don't worry about your bills. I'll cover your bills, but you're going to quit because you don't have to do through those things. And that was a level of support that credible to me that I could count with a person in that profound way to walk with me through these issues. So at my dad's funeral past October, I saw something really amazing. I saw a variety of people at his funeral. I saw this elite lawyers, doctors, government government officials, and I also saw everyday people my dad used to help and support and encourage and uplift. When I was at my dad's funeral, I saw this delivery guy parking his motorcycle in this place where we were, and uh, he walked towards me and he asked me if I was my dad's daughter. Uh, because he recognized me from a picture he saw at my dad's office and told me with tears in his eyes, I am just a delivery man. Your dad was my friend. I started making deliveries for his law firm and he treated me like I was one of the lawyers too. And this really meant the work to me. And I was so proud of my dad. In that moment, if I have any doubt that my dad was my hero, 
that moment I knew that he was. And again, he was my most effective understanding and ally that I ever had. I know he loved me profoundly and I feel he's still fighting for me from wherever he is right now. Wow, that is a very inspirational story. And thank you. Not too many people have heroes like yours. And also such a thorough answer because a lot of people are like, oh, my hero is, I don't know, <laughs> Spider-Man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But one thing, just to give the context, where were you at when you said that you were six years old and you were like, kids were telling you that you were ugly and then, mm-hmm. and your dad was supporting you. Were you in Brazil? Were you here? I was in Brazil. So I was born in Brazil and I lived in Brazil until my early 20s. I moved after I finished library school. I packed my things and I moved to Canada to study English and pursue a career in business because that's what I really want to do. I became a librarian because my mom wants me to be a librarian. So I went to library school and I said, Mom, here's... <laughs> There you go. I'm a librarian. Now now I'm going to do my thing, okay? So, and I went to Canada. So, that happened in Brazil. And you study librarianship in Brazil. Yes. So, all these kind of race issues also, they started in Brazil. Yes. So, from early on, you felt that oppression. Yeah, I think... For people of color, and I don't, I don't know if Max it, it resonates the same way for you, but you get aware of that you're different very early on because sometimes people point that out to you, and sometimes you've excluded in some ambience. Or so for me, it happens very early on. It happens at that day, and I remember even what I was wearing. Can you imagine that for a six years old to go through that? Very formative. Wow. Wow. Thanks so much for sharing that story. It's, that's just amazing. I, and I didn't, I've never heard that story. It was, it's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that a piece of you with us. Oh, are we ready for the next question? Sure. I don't know if this won't be as deep. But <laughs> are, are you a morning or a night person? <laughs> okay. So definitely a night person. Trust me. I I'm way, way more interesting and creative at night. I feel sometimes like I'm a some sort of undercover vampire who, <laughs> <laughs> who nice. must wake up in the morning for the sake of a mission or something. I'm definitely a, a night. The next one, this your mom might like this one <laughs> since she wanted you to be a librarian. So we're going to ask you about if somebody wrote a book about your life would be that. A drama, a comedy, a romance, an action book, a fantasy, science fiction, mm-hmm. or you feel in the blank if none of those <laughs> apply to you? <laughs> well, I think science fiction, not because I like science fiction per se, because I'm somewhat fascinated about the richness of my ethnic background. And because I think it would be a book about a time machine where I could get to know and spend time with my most remote ancestors. Because I feel the magic of being a diverse individual is because you feel at home in so many places and so many cultures and so so many cultures speak 
to my heart. So I am the kind of person that will cry watching a performance of flamenco gitano, but at the same time, <laughs> will feel really close to my indigenous roots. And at the same time, we'll read everything about African Banto tribes. I have all this diversity within me and I'm very curious about. So, and it's not been that 23andMe or those genetic kits you can buy, you know, can, can solve, but I think a book would be great because you could go to those locations and get some interaction with your ancestors. And so that would be really cool. I think a time machine, a science fiction book. <laughs> yeah. And also, I guess it fit with your vision because science fiction is a little bit about understanding our past and our present to see how we can solve the problems of the future. So I think that fit right into what I know about you and especially what you have done in librarianship for EDI and anti-racism. Oh, that's a great point. I never thought like this way, but that's a great point. It makes a lot of sense. Yes. It's great. And I, I like the, the science fiction. I've learned so much from science fiction. I like the idea of the ancestors too, right? The ancestors mm-hmm. are, they always, they hold the answers in, in so many respects, I think. That's right. Thank you, Marcy. Okay, here's, here's the next question. What brought you to the point in your professional, personal life that made you form the OLA, EDI, and Anti-Racism Committee and become the thriving force of equity, diversity, inclusion, and anti-racism toolkit for libraries? That's a great question. I think all my life I had this calling to be involved in causes bigger than myself. I remember when, when I was a little kid, I decided to start this OLA president in 2019, I believe. So she invited me along with a group of other librarians. And, and Max, you were part of that too, so you remember that. Yes. They actually started with an EDI task force, and it was actually presented to me by Elaine Hirsch. And we decided to put together a set of EDI recommendations for the Oregon Library Association. And at that time, we really want to challenge a little bit the EDI focus by inserting the, the notion of anti-racism within those guidelines and best practices. because. What, and Max, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but what we understood then is the same thing that we understand now, that the EDI focus without the anti-racism portion, it's mere compliance, and it carries a lot of compliance aspects. And as a person of color, I'm not interested in EDI as compliance, as a compliance initiative. I'm interested in EDI as part of humanity. I am interested in EDI as a cultural change. I'm interested in, in EDI in a way that I can see how people who look like me and are treated and subject to oppression on, the, on a daily basis because they are not. I want to be properly treated, properly valued, properly placed, properly engaged in that workplace environment. That's the EDI focus that I want to see, right? So we know that the existing systems that we have in librarianship today, they are very much so rooted and immersed in whiteness. And for those of you who doesn't know what whiteness means, in short, is a particular system that is created to benefit white individuals. And that's why I decided to push 
OLA to promote the task force, to literally promote the task force to a committee level. And I outlined that as a main recommendation because EDI alone is compliance. And because EDI and anti-racism, it's not a one-time effort, something that a task force will tackle and nobody ever needs to touch it. It's not a project. It must be treated as a cultural change and it needs to be funded as a continuous effort. And when your task force and when your committee, when your divisions can no longer take care of a heavy load, then guess what? Other avenues need to be presented by library leaders because we didn't even put a dent on EDIA work yet. And the toolkit came after that because the toolkit was also a recommendation item. So we knew people had to start from somewhere. So we itemized, and Max was part of that group too, um, we itemized the, the toolkit as a recommendation and gave form and content to it. And then once it was done, I presented the draft to the EDIA committee, the Equity, Diversity, Inclusion, and Anti-Racism Committee, and to the OLA board. And then we went from there. Thank you, Marcy, for... And we know that now hearing your story, I mean, that you are a person that is a go-getter. <laughs> and uh, the, the next question is, it has a lot of parts. And okay. people wanted to know, especially as a person of color, EDI and anti-racism and anti-oppression work is a heavy work. In that sense, what have been some of the biggest surprises that is one, or challenges that you found while leading this effort okay. uh, around the states and how those surprises or challenges have affected your outlook on EDI, specifically in the library profession? Wow, that's a great question. And yes, you are absolutely right. It is heavy work. And I, I believe my motivation to be part of something this big, part of this work lies on my own personal and my professional experiences. When you are a person of color, you learn at a very young age that the systems surrounding you are not necessarily there to protect you. Most of the time, they are there to break, to question your ability to perform, to question if you belong or not into a, like a social dynamic or to a group. So when you are constantly mistreated and used, misled, bullied, underserved, <clears throat> underrepresented, unseen, unheard, you start to, paraphrasing Dr. Angela Davis, you start, you get to a point where you're no longer accepting the things you cannot change, but you start changing the dynamic of the things that you can no longer accept. And to explain my outlook on EDI, I need to tell you a story. Like I said before, my mom always wanted me to be a librarian. So I went to library school to make her happy. And right after that, I went to pursue my dreams and I moved to Canada to get better in English and start my career in business. I got project management, uh, project management certification, and I work in corporate for 17 years. Well, after those 17 years, I became literally ill, had an illness 
that affect me physically and emotionally. And so after those 17 years of being tokenized and at the same time having to hear from my managers, directors, whatever corporate leadership, that by the way, it's mostly made of white um, middle-aged men. So these people that insisted to throw in my face that my discontentment and my inability to see a future in that company was my problem. So I felt that people were throwing that on my face all the time, like that's your problem. Sometimes I would hide in the bathroom and cry because, you know, I was made fun. Somebody made fun of my accent. Somebody told me that I came across bossy because when white people are say something, it's like, oh, they are assertive, assertive. But when a person of color that is also an immigrant, that is also that also has an accent, say something, oh, no, you come across bossy, angry. So I remember corporate, it sometimes were a night, nightmare to me because I would have a performance review and then managers or directors would throw in my face, oh, they have to fight so much to have someone like me in their team. What that even mean? <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, what? Or something like, oh, you were so lucky to work for this company, as if my qualifications and my skills were not a decisive factor to hire me. So that carry on and add a lot of stress on you and add and contributes to your imposter syndrome. And then when you try to be very professional, you hear things like, oh, you're too serious, too focused. When I hire you, I thought you would be more laid back like the other Brazilian people. And I was like, what is this? (laughs) Those stupid things that you hear. And then when enough was enough for me, corporate, then I decided to consider my return to librarianship. Because I thought librarianship was this very egalitarian place where uh, the profession was surrounded by, you know, for example, like the connection between librarianship and academia. I thought that would make things easier for me in that field because my understanding at the time was that libraries were already there on EDI and interested. So I thought libraries were already there challenging systemic racism, acknowledging and recognizing their shortcomings and and their participation in segregation and oppression. And my biggest surprise answering your question was like libraries had the knowledge and paper, but the effort wasn't there yet. So once again, paraphrasing Dr. Angela Davis, I had to work to change the things I could no longer accept. And then I decided to be involved with EDI and anti-racism to this level, not only at libraries, but I made a commitment to myself. If someday I leave libraries and I go work somewhere else, this is something I'll carry with me wherever I go. Wow. I'm so happy you came back to librarianship. And when did you, because you said that you moved to Canada, Mm -hmm. so when did you move to the state when you decided to come back to librarianship? No, I so I moved to Canada in the early 2000s. And I moved to U.S. in 2009. Yeah, I didn't jump like right into libraries. So I, in Canada, I worked for IBM during the time that I was there. And then when I moved to U.S., I worked to Nike. And I worked, I worked first for a company called Thomson Reuters, that they have like a, a, an office here in Lake Oswego. And then I worked in, for Nike. And then 
after Nike is when I decided to embrace librarianship again. And the nice folks from McKinsey Public Library hired me. So thank you, Jenny, and Courtney. <laughs> and before Max jump into the, the next question, I want to ask you, because you mentioned something about they assume things about you, like, oh, you're more laid back, like Brazilian mm-hmm. people. Is mm-hmm. any other assumption, like, for example, maybe a lot of people assume right off the bat that you speak Spanish. Is that right or not? Yeah, yeah, I guess so. Which for me, it's not a problem because I do speak Spanish and I think my Spanish is pretty solid. When no, I'm... Brazilians are really good. I mean, we <laughs> are the one that they're the worst. Brazilians, <laughs> they speak Spanish really well. And the rest of the Latin America is doesn't speak Portuguese, which is a shame. But, you know, I think it's it's our duty as Brazilians to learn Spanish because we are lo- alone in that lake because we're colonized by Port- Portugal. So we're alone. So, yes, we are a big country. We're like the size of a continent in Latin America. But we are alone. So I think because we're surrounded by Spanish everywhere, I think should be... I think now it's mandatory in Brazil for kids to learn Spanish in school, the same level they learn Portuguese, so, which is a great thing. But I learned Spanish in college. But is there in any other assumption? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. It's mostly stereotypical things, right? Like being a Brazilian woman, it's so weird because... Like those things that you hear, like, oh, when we hire you, we thought you were fun. I thought we'd dance a samba here for us. Some stuff like that. And then it's like, I cannot believe that people would make those inferences and kind of judge you for like a festivity in your country. And all those kind of assumptions that people carry about and stereotypical views about Latin American and Latin America. I was always <laughs> curious about what was the impression and exactly like you say, because Brazil is kind of like, is you are Latina, your first language is not Spanish. So it's kind yeah. of those assumptions also that kind of putting everybody in the same the same Sack. boat. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the Pope's fault. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you're right. <laughs> Just dividing us. <laughs> oh, man. All right, here's another one. Mm-hmm. When you first started working on the toolkit, in what ways did you envision, or rather hope, that it would be utilized in libraries in the state? In what ways have those hopes been either met or missed during the launching of the toolkit? Hmm. Okay, that is a question that is, it is uh, interesting because my vision when I uh, developed the toolkit was, okay, I will create something that everybody is asking for, right? Because through conversations, that's the vibe that I got. Like, oh, we want something that will, will serve to us as a North in terms of EDI and anti-racism. We need a set of guidelines. We need this, we need that. So uh, conduct surveys. We knew what people wanted. So we developed a toolkit based on that. So, but what 
what we want to do as a committee, and Max remembered that because he was part of the first EDI in Paris as a committee, we want to find supporters and we want to find facilitators to amplify the message of the toolkit. We didn't want this job to lay on the back of the EDI anti-racism committee. We want the involvement of library leaders. We want directors involved. We want managers, supervisors involved. And we designed the toolkit to be presented to this audience of directors, managers, supervisors, expecting that that message will be amplified from the leadership to the library staff. I feel like the toolkit was well anticipated. People are happy to have the toolkit in their hand. However, the level of adherence, it's not quite there. I don't think it is. The ideal thing for me would be to hear from libraries that promoted the toolkit for its staff and, and took advantage of the toolkit educational aspect of it, could be more vocal and could share that with other libraries and other leaders. I really want to blame COVID-19 for the fact that many libraries didn't even initiate the training and best practices. I really want to blame COVID. But I remember that we, as the EDI Anti-Racism Committee, also offered alternative training solutions for what was happening in terms of COVID-19. And we present that to library leaders. So there is the, the, the way, the, the formal way that is to gather your staff in a room and go page by page on the toolkit and say, oh, page one, let's talk about this. But there is other ways for you to do online. And it's a great professional development tool. And I seriously think that people should take more advantage of it, of the educational content of it. So I really want to thank the actually library leaders because I know a, a whole bunch of them that actually took this initiative serious enough and discussed the content of the toolkit with their staff and promoted some type of educational gathering where they talk about the toolkit, where they discuss the question, the discussion questions that are within the toolkit. Those discussion questions are there for a reason. You can present the content of that page and you can go to the discussion questions and say, hey, what do you guys think about that? So everything is really well presented and it has content, but also has solution. So I would like to take this space now actually to invite library leaders and library staff who utilize the toolkit and obtain success with that people that actually saw the value of the toolkit to come forward and talk about it. And I think here, the podcast would be a great place to do that. Totally agree. Awesome. Thank you so much, Marcy. Wow. Yeah. That's great. Can I ask you one more question? Unscripted? Max, you know me. Uh, Where do you see the state of EDI and anti-racism in Oregon libraries right now? I think we made some good progress. I used to be very, how do I say this? I used to be very cautious about displaying some gratitude here for the EDI anti-racism committee, because like I said, I was the first leader to that particular committee. But I think as a committee now, are doing a fantastic job. The committee prior people that were in the prior committee did a fantastic job. The toolkit gave 
us a lot visibility. And when I say us, gave the Oregon Library Association visibility and gave this work visibility. So I have to thank you, people that were involved with the task force, you, Max, it's like, I keep telling you this all the time. You like this force of nature. I really appreciate you. You were the, the person who actually it really inspired me to do this job. And I'll tell you something. I decided to be part of the task force back in two, 2018, I think, when we first talked, we started talking about that because I heard that you would be involved. And I said, I want to learn from this guy. So I, I want to be there. Well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you, Marcy, right now, like, it's an honor working with you. You are an amazing person and librarian and just a, a social justice advocate, you know, and, and uh, we love you. Thank you for your work and thank you for your time today so oh, much. Oh, I, I appreciate everything. you guys. I appreciate yes. you guys. <laughs> and to finish in a personal note, what would be one thing that you cannot tell just by looking at you what is that thing that people oh. cannot tell about you by looking at you hmm. I guess not so much by looking but again there is this assumption that because I'm so involved and outspoken and I'm a person that has this level of activism and that I am very outgoing and this and that but I'm not I'm very shy so I guess people that see me like speaking and giving those presentations and they assume that I am really this outspoken person and this really I don't know I have people that don't know me and I didn't know them they know me from talks and this and that they come to me and they I think they're disappointed because they're like, wow, she's so quiet and shy because I am really shy. So I guess that's something you can't imagine, but I am extremely shy. But it's a force that is, is driving you to be outspoken. I guess that. so. Yeah, it's something bigger than myself. So it is what is right, right? Standing for what is just and standing for what is right. It gives you the voice that you need to have in that particular scenario. I think, yeah, that's what encourages me. And that's what makes me feel powerful, you know, to deliver things when I am this super shy person. So, Well, thank you. Thank you so much. I really enjoy listening to your stories. I wish, I mean, we can stay here forever. (laughs) (laughs) I, I wish we could keep going and going. I think people are going to enjoy listening to your voice. And I really like that when I'm talking about EDI and anti-racism, it's the idea of amplifying voices. Yes. And your voice is one that needs to be amplified (laughs) like tons and tons of times. Thank you, guys. Now we'd like to ask you to reflect and act on the information you've gained from this. What are your takeaways or a takeaway from this interview? Pia? For me, it was really important to learn about Marcy in the personal level, because I think that a lot of time we as people with bias, conscious or not conscious or unconscious, we tend to assume things about people without knowing them. So getting to know the person in a more personal level for me is one of the takeaways I'm going to try to apply in the library and in life. I mean, when I encounter different people, they don't look like me or they don't speak like me. I 
need to learn who they are first. And how about you? What are your takeaways, Matt? Uh, one takeaway is, is similar to what you're saying. It's getting to know somebody at a deeper level and, and understanding their motivations. And after this interview, I'm like, wow, like I don't understand Marcy completely. No, but I understand why her work is so powerful. And just a little bit about where her passions come from. That's one of my takeaways, Pia. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. Also, after reflecting, we want you to maybe take an action. So what is an action that you can take? Here's one that we're offering. Read pages 1 to 12 of the toolkit and take the EDI anti-racist survey and see where you and your library stand in the EDI anti-racist journey. Keep an eye out for the next episode of Overview, Winning Out Oppression in Library. Our next episode will focus on the practical application of the EDIA toolkit on policies and practices in libraries. Overdue. Weeding Out Oppression in Libraries would not be possible without the generous support from the Oregon Library Association and the State Library of Oregon, whose mission is to provide leadership and resources to continue growing vibrant library services for Oregonians. We would like to take time to acknowledge historical injustices. We recognize Oregon was established as a white sanctuary state with the intent to exclude African-American and Black people on ancestral lands stolen from dispossessed Indigenous peoples. We recognize and honor the members of the federally recognized tribes and unrecognized tribes of Oregon, past, present, and future, whose lands we still occupy. Our intention with these acknowledgments is to disrupt practices of misinformation and patterns of genocide by drawing our collective attention to the original people of the land we inhabit, the slave trade and forced labor that built this country, and to the oppressive social systems interwoven into the fabric of our national and regional heritage. We ask that you take a moment to do the same.